Patrick and I tried to work this out for me coming here because he likes to have the board members come back and you know teach from time to time. That way you guys get to see us. We've been working it out, trying to work it out for about six months. Schedules weren't aligning. But I'm coming to Kansas and he got to go to Montana. Doesn't seem quite like a fair exchange, but I am happy to be here this morning. Um, it's, been a, it's been a while. I think it's maybe a year since I got a teacher last. There's a couple faces out there I don't recognize. So yeah, I was the assistant pastor uh, with Patrick, Pastor Patrick here for a few years. Um, God called us to Calvary Chapel of the Ozarks probably it's almost five years ago. That's crazy to think you know, at this point. Um, but it's been almost five years. I do get to keep track of you guys. I know what's going on. Patrick and I still talk on a regular basis, and I'm still on the board, so I know what's going on around here. I was fortunate to serve under Patrick for several years, and he taught me some very valuable lessons. One of those is how deep you can dive into a particular verse. Like, you don't have to go through the entire Word of God all at once. You can slow down. So we're going to go into the deep weeds today, as he calls it, and we're going to be in one half of one verse, and that's John 16, 23. So you guys can go ahead and turn there while I set this up. Today is the 21st anniversary of 9-11. I don't know if any of you realize that or not. It signifies a very important event in our country's history. On this day in 2001, planes were flown into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon by terrorists. Another plane was hijacked and crashed in Pennsylvania. The death toll that day was about three, close to 3,000 lives. And the toll kept climbing after that. Many people developed health problems in the years to come and would die much later from working ground zero that day. A lot of those were first responders. I'm a police officer, so it's near and dear to my own heart uh, what those guys did that day and what they had to go through. It's not a real happy way to start out a sermon, but it's the reality of the world that we live in. We live in a fallen, depraved world where we see sin all around us on a regular basis. We're inundated with it. Evil people do horrible things in this life. It's just a fact. And as Christians, we should be disgusted with the world around us. Yet, we're also called to love those same sinners, even our enemies. Yikes. We have to have Jesus' heart for them. That's a, at least for me, that's not always been an easy thing to do. Sometimes I forget that. I hear Christians groan and complain about the world around them. This president, he's horrible. Homosexuality, it's being forced upon us. Our public school system is failing our youth. And if that's not enough, there's the stress of family, jobs, finances, sickness. And then there's the big stuff like mass shootings and 9-11. With so much sin around us and so much stress upon us, how in the world do we keep the right attitude in this world? The answer is perspective. Perspective is what we will look at today in John 16, 23. Perspective is an artistic term. It means to look at something from the right angle. So if I want to see this pulpit, maybe I need to get down and see it in the right light. That's perspective. To see this world in the right way, we have to look at it through the lens of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Our knowledge of and relationship with Jesus is what gives us an accurate view of the world around us. Keeps us on track. Knowing who Jesus is is vital to having the right perspective in this life. If I asked you on a Sunday morning, 
beautiful day outside, right? It's a beautiful Sunday morning. We get the freedom to be here, meet in this place. Everything's going right right now for most of us. So if I ask you on this Sunday morning who Jesus is to you, I doubt it would be very hard for you guys to come up with a list. Jesus is my savior, my redeemer, my friend, my brother, my healer, my comforter, my teacher. He is the word made flesh, the son of God, the lamb slain before the world, the sacrifice for all sin, my replacement on the cross. Now I'm sure many of you could keep going. And those are all correct. But do they convey who Jesus is to you personally? If we truly understand who Jesus is, then how could anything in this life and of this world ever shake us? How is it possible? How could anything in this world ever make us doubt who's actually in control? If we understand who Jesus is, how could we ever have our eyes on the things of this life rather than eternity with him? John 16, 23 is a verse that means so much, but it explains very little. Jesus was speaking to his disciples in futuristic terms. He was telling them things before they happened in hopes that they would remember these things and understand after the events took place. It was prophecy to those disciples. For us, we get to look at it from the perspective of fulfillment. So John 16, 23, it says this, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask my Father in my name, he will give you. We're just going to focus on that first part today. And in that day you will ask me nothing. That statement alone should make us have some questions, even though Jesus just said we won't. So a little confusing to start off. I've been teaching the youth in Arkansas a crash course in inductive Bible study. That's where you read through the verse several times, and then you start asking questions about the verse. That way you can start interpreting it and seeing how God wants you to understand it. So think about the questions that you would have reading this verse. My first question is what day? Well, it's that day, right? Explains it right there. It's that day. Doesn't tell me anything. A couple of the answers from the youth were actually really good. They said that day could refer to death when we see Jesus face to face and know all things that we've longed to know. It's a pretty good answer. That day could refer to an individual's day of salvation. That day could refer to tribulation times when many of Jesus' prophecies would come to pass. The nice thing about Calvary Chapel is they taught us something really important. Context means a lot. So let's read some context and see if we get any more explanation. So back up to verse 16. We're going to read 16 through 24. It says, A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, in a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father? They said, therefore, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep, lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but the, your sorrow will be turned into joy. 
A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she gives birth, or is given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you have sorrow, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So we've got some context around it now, right? What do we see? Well, verses 16 to 19 are clearly talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. A little while, you will no longer see me. Again, a little while, you're going to see me. We, we get to look back and we go, that's Jesus' death. The disciples clearly have questions, though. But they're not asking Jesus those questions. They're not voicing them. Is it because they feel ashamed? It's because they feel embarrassed? But Jesus knows that they have questions. And they're not voicing those questions. So why doesn't Jesus just come out and say, hey, I'm going to the cross, and then in three days, I'm going to come back to life? Wouldn't that have cleared all of this up and been really simple? He just gives them more figurative language. Why? Why doesn't Jesus tell them in plain language? The short answer is the disciples couldn't handle it. You remember the movie A Few Good Men? You can't handle the truth, right? That's Jesus' interpretation here. They couldn't handle it. The disciples aren't mentally prepared to deal with the revelation that Jesus is giving them. How do I know that? Verse 20 says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. On this side of the cross, it's easy to look back and say, why didn't the disciples get it? Why didn't they understand? But put yourself in their sandals for a change. Jesus is your friend, your teacher, the Messiah. You've seen him do miracle after miracle, even seen him raise people from the dead. In your mind, there is nothing that Jesus can't do. Most of them have come to understand he is the promised Messiah. But they don't understand Messiah the same way that we do. The Jews understood the Messiah to be a conquering king. King of the Jews, born in Bethlehem. Ruling over all men, right? So even though Jesus has lived a pauper's life, almost as a homeless man, and he's conquered no one at this point... It didn't change their view. Even after Jesus' resurrection, they still didn't get it. Listen to Acts 1.6. It says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Really? Jesus has come back from the dead, and their main concern is that Israel is still under Roman control. The disciples didn't get it. They weren't realizing what Jesus was accomplishing. So let's see if we do. Jesus tells us the world will, re will rejoice, but you, disciple, will weep and lament. Have you ever thought about the day that Jesus died? I mean, truly thought about it in, in worldly terms. If Jesus were the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and he's dead, then in essence... God's dead. Right? Now, we know God, our Father, didn't die in a literal sense that day. But everything that he stood for did. 
With Jesus in the tomb, Satan had won. Sin had won. No consequence for your choices had won. Being your own God had won. This world thinks a planet without God is paradise. Choose to consume whatever you want. Food, alcohol, drugs, it doesn't matter. Choose to have sex with whomever you want. Choose whatever gender you'd like to be. Choose to murder your neighbor if you like. Have as many of abortions as you like. Marry, don't marry, doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to do. What's the latest saying I've heard? You do you. Really? Because at the end of the day, there's nothing but a powerless God above you. A God that couldn't even save his own son. A God that allowed sin to win. A God that could be mocked by Satan. A God that could be sold for 30 pieces of silver and then sealed in a tomb. A weak, ineffective, powerless God. That's what the world thought. Jerusalem cried out, crucify, crucify, as Jesus kept silent before his accusers. On the day of Jesus' death, the world was rejoicing that the man that pointed out our sin was now dead himself. The world still rejoices, guys, at the thought of his death. The world wants to believe God doesn't exist, that there's no consequences for our actions, that hell and judgment those aren't real. It doesn't exist. The depravity, sin, and utter chaos that we see on a daily basis is normal for this world. Country singer Luke Bryan, not a huge country fan, I used to be. He has a song named, Most People Are Good. Let me read one verse of that song to you. It says, I believe you love who you love, Ain't nothing you, could ever, you should ever be ashamed of. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. It's gotten awards. People are not basically good. They're evil. We're evil. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The evil of this world is completely normal. The fact that we're not okay with it shows we have a different nature. That's the good part. But for a brief period of time, three days, the world got just what it wanted and was rejoicing. During that same period of time, Jesus' followers wept, lamented, and grieved. Jesus told them their grief will be like labor. It's a horrible time while they're going through it but there's joy at the end. My wife Stephanie and I, we have four boys. I was there for every one of the births. I am not one of those guys that's gonna sit here and tell you that childbirth is beautiful. It's not. It looked horribly painful. Yet, after four of them, every one of them, as soon as that baby was laying on her, she told me it was all worth it. Joy. Because there was something at the end. There was hope. We covered what those three days meant to the world. Have you ever contemplated what those three days in the tomb meant to the disciples? Remember, they believe Jesus to be the Messiah, the conquering king, the one who will restore Israel. And now he's dead. 
Think about your own beliefs forged over a lifetime. What you think, how you reason, who you trust, why you trust them. Imagine all of that being ripped away in the blink of an eye. Everything you thought you knew that you were so certain about, it was all a lie. You missed a teaching from Jesus somewhere because to your understanding, this journey didn't end with him in a tomb and you being alive. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They're questioning their faith. They turn their backs on Jesus in his hour of need. One of your best friends is the guy that sold him as a slave. The Jews want you dead for even following this guy. What do you do now? If Jesus can die, is God even real? Why would I put my life on the line if Jesus was a man just like the rest of us? Would you begin to think that he was just a delusional man that thought he was God but wasn't really? This would be the deepest, darkest depression that anyone could experience. To know and be so sure of everything, and then a few moments later to not even know what you believe anymore. This was a horrible time for the disciples. All their hope had been ripped away. Think about people that receive a terminal cancer diagnosis, someone that's been sexually abused, a person that receives a term of life in prison, maybe a divorce after years of marriage. Name whatever scenario you want where someone's life was changed in the blink of an eye. What each of those people thought their future was going to be is now different. A couple years ago, um, I'm a police officer if I didn't mention that. Most of you know that. Um, a couple of years ago, a cardiac arrest call came out. And where I work at, sometimes the police are closer than the medics. So I went to the call, I got there before paramedics, and I started performing CPR on a guy. About 40 years old, he's just taking a shower, middle of the evening, like normal. Gets out of the shower, he's drying off, collapses right in the bathroom. I'm doing CPR on him with his wife and young children watching. They're praying for a miracle, but I knew the answer, unfortunately, that their entire life had just changed in the blink of an eye. Understand, as Christians, we have hope because of Jesus. If we believe in his sacrificial death on the cross, this life isn't all there is. There's eternity waiting for us. Think about the disciples. To their understanding at this point in John, Jesus had been ripped away. There was no hope. Jesus was their hope, and now he's dead. And John, Jesus is telling them all this before it happens, but they don't understand what he's talking about. So why is Jesus telling them if they don't understand? So that hopefully in the middle of this crisis, they will remember his words and come back. Pastor Patrick has said before, in the midst of grief, you have to wait for how you feel to catch up with what you know. Any of you heard him say that before? Yeah, it's true. Our emotions override our knowledge sometimes. They had all of these teachings in their minds, but they didn't remember it when he's in that tomb. Does anyone in here think that Jesus needed to be in the tomb three days to conquer sin and death? Raise your hand if you think that's true. Exactly. Yeah, he didn't need to be in there three days. 
I've heard people say that Jesus had to die on the cross to fulfill prophecy and the law. And to a certain extent, that's true. But who made the law that Jesus did? Who created sacrifice for sin? Who created the world where the cross was located? God could have changed this entire system if he chose to. Why he chose to atone for sin on a cross by his death, no one can answer. That's up to him. However, there's a couple reasons why maybe he had to be in the tomb three days. My personal belief on this, and this is just me talking, I think the reason that Jesus was in the tomb three days is because it was giving the disciples the time they needed to process his resurrection. They needed that time. The Apostle Paul had a similar experience. He grew up under Jewish belief system and understood the Messiah to be a conquering king, just like these disciples. Paul was so zealous for his cause that he approved of the stoning of Stephen and dragged others away to be beaten and imprisoned. This Paul that knew everything there was to know about the Messiah, he's just happily walking along the road to Damascus when Jesus got his attention. He was blinded for how many days? Three. Think that's a coincidence? It's not. I think that those three days, Paul needed to question everything he thought he knew about God the Father and Jesus his Son. Everything he was so sure about was changing in the blink of an eye. Three days to change his worldview to Jesus's worldview. Paul needed those three days to come to terms with who Jesus was and what he was being called to do. Jesus says at the end of verse 22, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. From grieving and lamenting to joy. When they see him again after the resurrection, they're going to have joy that no one can ever take away from them. Why? Why is it? Why would their overwhelming grief now be turned into unspeakable joy? When Jesus rose from the dead, what all did that now signify to those disciples? Remember how Jesus said the world was rejoicing at his death. Rejoicing! Like you would at a party or a concert or something. Rejoicing! That's what the world was doing at his death. For three days, the world was joyous and ecstatic. Better than the days of Noah, better than the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, better than the days of Solomon, better than 2022. The world was on its own and accountable to no one. The world's perspective was through the lens of Jesus' death. The disciples were in the pit of despair. But when they saw Jesus face to face after they witnessed his death, what would that make you think? Ghost? Hallucination? Alien? Right? But to touch him? To embrace him? To talk to him? To put your finger in his side? It was real. He is real. Jesus was dead, but now he's alive. It's amazing. Your mind would be spinning. You'd be at a loss for words. The last three days have taken you to the gates of hell in despair, made you question everything that you thought you were so sure of about God, about worldly systems that you live under. Jesus said, this joy, 
that the disciples now feel after they have seen him alive, no one will ever be able to take that away from them. Can't happen, not even if they try. They now have assurance that even death can't conquer Jesus. They now have confidence that everything Jesus ever said while he was alive, it's all true, every bit of it. That there really will be an end to this world, that they really will be together with Jesus in a place he's prepared for them. That death itself is just a minor sting, something that we pass through on our way to eternity. The significance of the resurrection is so overwhelming, words fail to describe it. The world was looking at Jesus through the lens of his death. The the disciples' perspective would change. They started seeing the world through the lens of Jesus' resurrection. Then we get to John 16, 23. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Matthew Henry points out, up to this point in John, the disciples have questioned Jesus about everything. They asked Jesus ignorant questions, ambitious questions, distrustful questions, impertinent questions, and some curious questions. Jesus even gave the disciples answers from time to time, and they questioned the answers. The disciples were masters of questioning Jesus. They weren't the masters of understanding, at least not yet. We know from the context that that day isn't some distant future where we see Jesus in eternity. That day is the day we see Jesus for who he truly is and our perspective is changed. That day should be every day for those of us that call ourselves Christians. Every day. We don't have to wait. That day is now, today, right now for you guys. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Why is that? Does this mean that perfect revelations arrived and we have perfect knowledge? Jesus did promise us the gift of the spirit of truth. And if you keep reading in John, you'll actually learn more about him. But even with the gift of the Holy Spirit, I think we know we don't get perfect revelation. We don't get perfect knowledge. And that day you will ask me nothing is pointing at perspective. Think about the questions you have about life, about love, about God, about the universe, about societal problems, politics, pandemics, careers, you name it, about anything you can possibly imagine. Did God really create the world in six days or did it take much longer? And that was an analogy. Why does a loving God allow suffering in this world? Which is a better choice, Republicans or Democrats? Why does every commercial have to have homosexuals in it? Every commercial, every commercial. Why would somebody think abortion's a good idea? I don't know that answer either. Which is right, pre-mid or post-tribulational views? You guys want to argue about this morning? I've heard good points for predestination and free will. Which one's right? Is faith or works more important? I can go on with a hundred of these. In that day, you will ask me nothing. I've mentioned before when I've taught, my favorite scene in the entire New Testament, hands down, is Jesus with his disciples on the beach on the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection. So this is audience participation time. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and imagine you're on that beach. If I can do it as a cop in a room full of people, you can do it too. (laughs) 
So imagine setting the scene, you went out and you went back to your old life of fishing. You spent all night and you caught absolutely nothing and you feel like a failure right now. You see Jesus on the shore, tells you to cast that down on the other side of the boat. Now you have more fish than you could possibly know what to do with. Then you get to the beach. Jesus has cooked you breakfast. You're staring into his face and your mind's thinking, I saw this guy die. He was stabbed with a spear. I saw the water and the blood flow out. I questioned everything about him. I even denied knowing who he was. I ran off and left him when he needed me. I didn't believe him when he told me he was coming back. I owe everything I am to this man. Listen, he's not a man. I mean, I'm, I'm staring into the face of God right now, and I'm not dead. This is so weird. God just cooked me breakfast. Jesus loves me, and I don't deserve any of it. I hope he knows I can't repay him. Of course he knows he, I can't repay him. He's God. I've never felt love like this. I want to stay on this beach forever. And I would if I could. In that moment, the disciples are learning revelation. This wasn't Jesus telling them a parable or an allegory. This was Jesus living out prophecy right in front of them. This was Jesus not just telling them he's the son of God. He is showing them he's the son of God. Jesus is giving the disciples full revelation and understanding of who he really is. By being on that beach and loving those men in spite of their faults, they finally knew that their hope never died and nothing can separate them from the love of Jesus. They were finally understanding who Jesus really is. In light of all that, how important are all those questions I brought up earlier? They're not important at all. Basking on that beach isn't the end of the story, though. How sad history would have been if we had that scene and then we just had the end, nothing else. Everything just ended 2,000 years ago. Jesus has a job for us and the disciples. Listen to his words in Matthew 28. He told us, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus literally says to the disciples, go make more disciples. Jesus says to them, you disciple, you Christian, you brother and sister, finally understand who I am and why I came here. I loved you so much I was willing to die in your place. I loved you so much that even though you abandoned me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that you finally understand this, go make more of you. More people that understand who Jesus truly is, not what this world or even religion wants Jesus to be. Share your understanding and experience so that others will know who Jesus is too. Now that they understand who Jesus is, that perspective allows them to see the world accurately. 
There was never questioning of Jesus on how to do it. Just go do it. Jesus, we don't understand the politics of Rome and Jerusalem. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Jesus, how do we get people to listen to us, listen to the message? In that day, you will ask me nothing. Jesus, we really need to go, you to go over end times events one more time, maybe two. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Jesus, which president should we really vote for? In that day, you will ask me nothing. In light of understanding who Jesus is, everything else pales in comparison and comes into perspective. We understand God when we understand Jesus. John 14.9 says this, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I see Jesus looking into Philip's eyes with a big smile on his face, going, Philip, it's me. I'm right here. I've been here the whole time. When we understand who Jesus is, things that the world holds as the highest and most important become merely a footnote on eternity. The wrongs we experience in this life, because we've all been wronged, they all melt away at the thought of the wrongs we have done to Jesus. To have God look at your filthiness, your evil thoughts, your hidden sins, and love you anyways, nothing else matters. Paul, having come through his own crisis of faith with Jesus, tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.2, says this, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All the knowledge, all the understanding, all the wisdom that Paul had, and yet he realized he really didn't know anything in light of Christ's love for him. Paul had amazing insights on the fulfillment of the law in the life of Christ, and yet he claimed to know nothing amongst the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's an amazing turnaround for such an egotistical man that used to be called Saul, right? Paul learned and understood that the single most important thing that mankind needs to understand is Christ in him crucified. If we can wrap our minds around a God that looked at sinful, pitiful, weak, murderous, idolatrous mankind, us, and that same God said, I'm going to step into man's history, into their world and offer up myself as a sacrifice to my enemy because I love these people so much. No matter how many times we say it, it doesn't make sense. It will never make sense, and we believe it. It sounds insane. But if we can have the faith to believe such a crazy idea, then suddenly all that other stuff that we contemplate really doesn't matter. In that day, you will ask me nothing. So here's the challenge for you, Christian. Have you arrived? Have you gotten to that day with Jesus and your personal walk? Are you still so consumed with the things of this life that you're looking at this world through the perspective of Jesus' death rather than his resurrection? Is Jesus alive to you or is he dead? 
Are you consumed with who Jesus is so much that the cares of this world fade away? The things that you thought were the most important that you just have to have the answers to, have you looked into the face of Christ and realized that those answers don't really matter all that much? If you don't know that revelation from Jesus, you need to. Because our job is to share that love and understanding with others. Jesus said they will know you by your love for one another. Have you heard that before? Not your political affiliation, not your theology, not the good deeds that you do. It's not it at all, but your love. That love is the love he first showed us and made us understand to the point that we have no more questions for him. We believe it all. That we were at the gates of hell in despair and Jesus descended to bring us up and take our place on the cross. That love is what this world needs. He has burdened my heart with that more than ever as I look at the world around me. Our time is short. The rapture is coming. We will be leaving soon. We need to take as many with us as we can. Amen? Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you gave us accounts of how you walked in this life how you interacted with the disciples, and you tell us that you love us in the exact same way. We get to read the life of these disciples and see how just flawed they truly were, Lord, that I can look at each one of them and go, yep, I got part of that in me. Yep, I got part of that one too. And you loved them anyways. Lord, I'm looking forward to seeing you in eternity. I'm looking forward to being with you on the beach and having breakfast with you. But Lord, strengthen us for the work that we have while we're here. If we've gotten lazy in our walks, Lord, if we've forgotten and lost perspective of why we're still here, change us. Get a hold of our hearts today, Lord. Get a hold of our hearts this morning that we wouldn't leave here thinking about the world. We would only leave here thinking about you and sharing your love with the people you bring into our life. If there's sin in our life, Lord, we repent. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for getting our eyes off of the prize. Forgive us for looking at this world and thinking that it's all there is and grasping after the things of this world. We don't want that to be us, Lord. Change us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord embolden us to go out and speak freely of your love to this lost and dying world. Lord, help us to take as many people with us as we possibly can. Burden us for the lost souls around us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Amen.